right, let's pray and ask for God's blessing as we consider saving faith this morning. Father, thank you for this day of rest and worship, and thank you that we could meet in your house on your day. Thank you for the rich heritage that we have received from our fathers in the faith. We pray as we consider the reality of saving faith this morning, that you would be pleased to shed light by the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the way that our forefathers structured their presentation of the Christian life was first of all, they deal with the blessings of the Christian life and then with the graces of the Christian life. And so they deal with effectual calling or regeneration, the moral renewal of the soul, and then justification or the clearing of the record at conversion by means of faith, then adoption, the reception of the inheritance of rights and privileges of being a child of God by means of faith at conversion. And then they deal with progressive ongoing moral renewal or sanctification. That's chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. And then now in chapter 14, they begin to address the graces of the Christian life. And first and foremost of those is faith. Now, over the years, I've outlined this in various ways. Uh, you could take your pick or you could do your own. But paragraph one, the fountain of faith. Paragraph two, the focus of faith. Paragraph three, the fruition of faith. Or if you prefer, paragraph one, the origin of faith. Paragraph two, the objects of faith. Paragraph three, the outcome of faith. So basically in the first paragraph, they talk about where saving faith comes from. What causes, originates? From what fountain does saving faith flow? What is the cause root and production of saving faith. In paragraph two, they talk about the objects or the focus of saving faith. How principally does saving faith act? And so saving faith has two focal points. It focuses on God's word and it focuses on God's son. Saving faith focuses on scripture and on Christ. And then in the third paragraph, they talk about the outcome or the fruition of saving faith. And that is this, that saving faith endures throughout life and always emerges victorious. So that's how our Confession of faith presents saving faith. Where does it come from? What does it do? And how does it come to an end? Okay? Where does it come from? What does it do? And how does it come to an end? 
Is it a success or a failure? What are its principal activities? How is it produced? All right, you follow the overall development of their thought. Now, with respect to this particular subject, as I've said to you before, and as is true in so many of the chapters of our Confession of Faith, the writers of the 1689 put together the work of the Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Baptists of the previous generation. So the Presbyterians produced the Westminster Confession. The Congregationalists, John Owen and the Independents, which I said sounds like the name of a rock band. The Congregationalists produced the Savoy Declaration. And the Baptists produced the first London Confession. And what they did in the second London Confession, published in 1689, was they took the work of the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists and combined it with the work of the Baptists and produced our Confession of Faith. And as that is so often the case, so also it is the case, at least in one of these paragraphs, Namely, paragraph two, as I'll try to show you this morning. So that's what I want to say by way of introduction. You got the idea? Where does faith come from? What does it do? And what results? What result does faith have? Is it a success or a failure? Right? All right, first, paragraph, paragraph one. 14.1. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls. So this is saving faith. Is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. So they have two things about the fountain of saving faith, or the origin of saving faith. They have the almighty producer of saving faith, and the ordinary means of producing saving faith. So there is a person, a specific person, one of the three persons of the Trinity, that they single out as the almighty primary producer of saving faith in the heart. And then they speak about the ordinary means by which he produces that faith. So let's look at it. Whose work is it? It is the work of the Spirit of Christ. To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ to believe. Philippians 1.29 Faith is the gift of God. And it is the gift of God produced in the heart 
by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. When he takes out a heart of stone, an unbelieving heart, and he plants a heart of flesh, a believing heart. It is the work of God the Spirit in the heart. He is the cause. He produces. He is the source and the fountain and the cause and the originator of saving faith. And ordinarily he uses the word, the ministry of the word. Romans 10, 14. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And also faith increases. The apostles prayed, Lord, increase our faith. And Peter says, as newborn babes desire, 1 Peter 2, 2, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And these are the passages that the forefathers that wrote this confession cite to support what they say. So that faith is produced by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he uses means ordinarily, and that means that he ordinarily uses the word of God and the other means of grace. Uses the word of God and the means of grace, he uses them to produce faith and to increase and strengthen faith throughout the Christian life. Well, that's what they say in the first paragraph. The fountain of saving faith. The Word and Spirit of God. Follow that? Okay. Second paragraph. The focus of saving faith. Now, I'm not quite sure how exactly to do this. So, here's what I'm going to do. If I'm going to read... Two different documents. And if you're looking at what the 1689 says, maybe you can figure out how the writers of the 1689 put these two documents together to come up with paragraph two. You think that works for you? All right, let's try it. First of all, I'm going to read the second paragraph of the London Confession. No, the London Confession. I'm just waking myself up. I'm going to read the second paragraph. Do I need to do wake you up too? Are you all right? You awake? It's good. So, I'm going to read the second paragraph of the Westminster Confession. And then, I'm going to read what is the first London Confession, first London Confession, confession article, 22. So first, the Westminster, okay, did you look down and at the at the 1689, see if you can see how some of it came from the Westminster. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true 
whatsoever is revealed in the word. For the authority of God himself speaking therein and acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. And you see any connection between what's written there and, and that? You follow that? Now, let me read you the first London Confession of Faith, Article 22. Faith is the gift of God wrought in the heart of the elect by the Spirit of God by which faith they come to know and believe the truth of the Scriptures and the excellency of them above all other writings and all things in the world as they hold forth the glory of God in his attributes, the excellency of Christ in his nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Spirit in its workings and operations, and so are enabled to cast their souls upon his truth thus believed. And you see how that was also incorporated, taken, and incorporated into our confession of faith. You see that? See how they pasted them together? Altered each slightly and pasted them together. And in that method, they're expressing their unity and continuity with the Baptists and with the Presbyterians of the former generation. Making sense to you? All right. So that's the source material for paragraph two. So, the focus of saving faith is twofold. Saving faith has a broad focus. It relates, first of all, to Scripture. And then, Saving faith has its central, or what the confession calls its principal focus. If you think of it like a, a target and a bullseye. So, saving faith has a broad focus. It focuses on scripture. And it also has a central or principal focus. Principally, centrally, it focuses on Christ. Scripture and Christ, the dual focus or objects of saving faith. Okay? So first of all, saving faith 
has a broad focus. And regarding this broad focus, they combined what Westminster and First London said about it. And the broader focus of saving faith is its confidence in Scripture. Saving faith, first of all, embraces the infallibility and inerrancy, the authority, complete veracity, absolute authority, and supreme excellency of Scripture. Secondly, saving faith embraces whatever Scripture reveals about the triune God. And saving faith responds in accord with whatever Scripture reveals. So, it embraces the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. It embraces whatever Scripture reveals about the triune God. And in saying those things, they're combining the insights of the two former confessions of the last of the previous generation and then it also responds accordingly to whatever scripture reveals to its commands and its threats and its promises you follow that all right first of all saving faith embraces the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. It's complete veracity. It believes to be true whatever is revealed in the Word. Acts 24 and verse 14, But this I confess to you, that after the way which they call heresy, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things that are written in the Law and the Prophets. He believes whatever the Scripture says. That's what saving faith does. Whatever Scripture says, saving faith says, I believe it. I embrace it. Because the Bible is the Word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. There's no error in it. It's infallible, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, it's reliable. Everything it says is true. Whether it speaks about history, or whether it speaks about doctrine, or morality, or creation, or anything, or the end of the world, or anything else. Whatever it says is true. It's reliable. It's a lot more reliable than the pronouncements of arrogant and fallen mankind. And saving faith relies on it. And saving faith embraces it. I believe all things written in the Law and the Prophets. And then, especially, it embraces whatever Scripture reveals about the triune God. The glory of God the Father, the glory of God the Son, and the glory of God the Holy Spirit. As it bears forth the glory of God in His attributes, the excellency of Christ in His nature and offices, 
the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and operations. The writers of the second London, R. 1689, took those words from the first London Confession of Faith. Whatever the Bible says about God, we believe it. And finally, it responds in accord with whatever scripture reveals. It acts differently upon that which each particular passage contains. And so faith obeys the commands of scripture, yielding obedience to the commands. Faith trembles at the warnings of scripture, trembling at the threatenings. Faith embraces the promises of Scripture and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. So faith focuses on Scripture and this is how it behaves when it does. Isaiah 66, 2. To this man will I look, even to him that is a poor and contrite spirit and trembles at my word. And Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded and embraced them. But then that brings us to the central focus or the principal focus of saving faith. But the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting receiving and resting on him alone for justification, sanctification, eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Testifying toward all, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is knowing the story of Jesus. Faith is saying that story of Jesus revealed in Scripture is true. Everything it says is true. He is God, the supreme being. He became human. He took to himself a true human body and a true human soul without ceasing to be God. He lived a perfect life. He died an atoning death. He's raised literally and bodily from the grave. He ascended to heaven and there he is reigning in glory and he will return to this earth to judge the living and the dead. Faith knows the story of Jesus. Faith says that story of Jesus is true. And faith receives and relies upon the living Jesus of that story as its only hope of being right with God and going to heaven at last. It receives Christ and rests on Christ alone. To be right with God, to live a godly life, and to spend eternity with God. This happens by virtue of the covenant of grace, which is God's commitment to work in his people everything they need to glorify him. So that's the focus, the dual focus of saving faith. focuses on scripture and it focuses on Christ. The word of God and the Son of God. And finally, thirdly, the fruition or outcome of saving faith. Saving faith endures and saving faith wins. 
It endures, it lasts, and it wins. It never gives up. It never quits. Never gives up. This faith, 14.3, although it be in different stages and may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of it different in the kind or nature of it, as is all other saving grace, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Those that, as Jesus describes them in the parable of the sower, those who for a while believe and in time of temptation fall away. So here, they're laying the groundwork. They're telling you that there is a solid ground for this, for this successful fruition, the victorious, triumphant outcome of saving faith. And the solid ground of that outcome is the persevering or lasting nature of saving faith, which makes it different from the temporary faith of an apostate. An apostate is someone who falls away. Someone who for a while believes. They make a profession of faith and then they go back into the world. They don't have saving faith. The faith that they for a while profess does not last. It does not endure. But true saving faith is not like that. It's of a different nature. than that temporary profession of faith. But saving faith is not all of the same degree. Some have more faith than others. Jesus says to them, O oh, you of little faith. And he says, I haven't found such great faith, no, not in Israel, speaking of the centurion in Matthew 8.10. And sometimes Faith is weak and sometimes strong. In Romans 4, and Abraham being not weak in faith. But whether it's weak faith or strong faith, whether it's little faith or much faith, if it's true faith, it's lasting faith. It's enduring faith. And it's different in its very nature in this respect from the temporary professions of faith of apostates. Hebrews 10.39 We are not of them who draw back unto perdition. Because the book of Hebrews was written to prevent that kind of apostasy. We are not of them that draw back to perdition, but them that believe or have faith to the saving of the soul. Saving faith endures and lasts it never gives up. It never quits. And then they specify two of the common features of this endurance of saving faith. 
You see, they talk about the foundation first because of its nature as enduring and lasting, unlike the temporary faith of an apostate. Then they say, and therefore, in other words, built on this foundation, because of this, therefore, although, though, it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ. So not only do they talk about the solid ground, its lasting nature, that it never quits, it never gives up. They talk about the common features of its endurance and triumph. And that is, sometimes it's assaulted so that it can be weakened. And sometimes it results in what they call full assurance. But always victorious. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, says John in 1 John 5. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith is victorious. Faith endures. Although there are struggles and assaults upon faith. And often in spite of and Sometimes even through struggles and trials, there is the attainment of what they call a full assurance of faith. It can be assailed and weakened, as Jesus warned Peter in Luke 22, 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. His faith was assaulted, but it didn't fail. It was weakened, but it endured. And in Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. There is a strengthening of faith that they call a full assurance of faith that comes from a good conscience. A good conscience washed in the blood of Christ strengthens faith. A bad conscience weakens faith and gives rise to doubts and struggles. So, even though there are assaults, there are there's often a full assurance of a good conscience. But I know when I die I'm going to heaven, my conscience is clear. I wish we could say that every Christian can always really say that. Sometimes Real Christians can't say that. Because their faith has been weakened and assaulted and they're dabbling with things that they know are wrong and they shouldn't be doing them and they're still doing them. And their conscience is smiting them. 
and they struggle with doubt about whether they're really saved. Because they know there are things in their life that they need to deal with and they're not dealing with them. You follow what I'm saying? But thank God that's not always the case. There are times when we could say, no, that's not true. That's really not true of me. I understand it because once I'm ashamed to say it was true of me, but it's not true of me right now. Right now, I have a good conscience, and I know if I died right now where I'd be tomorrow. I'd be in heaven with Jesus. So oftentimes Christians can actually say that in spite of all the struggles. And then there's a cause, and they end with this. The certain cause of this endurance and victory, and that is full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and completer or finisher of our faith. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. It cannot fail. Genuine saving faith cannot fail because Jesus guarantees it. He's not going to let anyone who's truly saved perish. He's going to maintain and strengthen their faith firm unto the end. So it behooves us then, brothers and sisters, to keep a good conscience before God. The fountain of saving faith. God's word is the means. God's spirit. The powerful, almighty God. The focus of saving faith? The broad focus? Scripture. Your word is true. Believes everything the Bible says to be true. And acts accordingly. The principal central focus? Jesus Christ. Knows the story. Believes it to be true because it's the Bible story. But then it personally, saving faith personally, rests, receives, trusts, and calls upon Jesus for deliverance from sin and the wrath to come. And finally, the fruition of saving faith. Saving faith is successful. It endures. It lasts throughout life. It does it because of its nature as lasting. It does it with struggles that sometimes involve assault and sometimes involve full assurance. And it does it because Jesus Christ makes absolutely sure that it will be victorious. He guarantees it. Now that's what I wanted to say to you this morning about saving faith. Questions or comments on any of this?